When Michael Scott Moore flew to Somalia to write a book about the piracy that's rampant in the Horn of Africa, he didn't expect to become the center of the story. I knew Somali pirates tended not to kill their hostages precisely because they wanted just money for them. They're not ideological uh, hostage takers. They, they're just criminal. They just want the money. What I didn't expect was that they were going to demand $20 million, which was a total shock to me. Coming up, we hear how Michael survived being held hostage for nearly three years by Somali pirates. We'll also look at the reasons people avoid visiting Russia and what they're missing out on. For a little historical fun, travel writer Robert Reed suggests a visit to Moscow's Cosmonaut Museum. You see all these old cosmonaut outfits and the dogs they sent up to space. They're actually there, the stuffed dogs. Plus, guides from London share tips for enjoying their expensive city on a budget. Oh, gosh, we've got 250 museums and art galleries in London, and almost all of them are free. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Americans' chilly attitude toward Russia is an outdated holdover from the Cold War era. At least that's what travel writer Robert Reed believes. He tells us what keeps taking him back to Russia in just a bit. And Michael Scott Moore used to be known for writing about surfing in Southern California until he went to Somalia to write about the rampant piracy there and got taken hostage himself. He tells us what happened and how he endured his ordeal for nearly three years a little later in the hour. Let's start with a look at how you can enjoy one of the world's great capitals without letting expenses get the better of you. Accommodations, world-class theater tickets, and fancy meals can max out your budget in London in a hurry. So, certified guides Robert Halkett, Tom Hooper, and Jeannie Carmichael are here with advice for freebies, bargains, and to take your calls about enjoying London on a budget. We're at 877-333-7425. Tom, Jeannie, Robert, thanks so much for being here. Pleasure. Pleasure. So London is, in some measures, expensive, but it's a great city, and, and big cities tend to be expensive. Uh, you've got a, accommodations, I think, is a, is a hurdle. What's your advice, very briefly, on getting a, affordable accommodations in London? Well, Airbnb is very popular now. I think Airbnb yeah. is. Airbnb. Beats, Beats mm-hmm. a hotel, so that's sure. kind of the, the dominant mm-hmm. thing. And very nice youth hostels. Lots of booking sites. Yes. Lots of for, hostels. Mm-hmm. For Hotels yeah. nowadays. So if you go online, you should be able to. Uh, you if you're on be. a budget, you could avoid the standard kind of hotel oh, yes. and find just, some alternative. Just though, as a tip, make sure you check the neighbourhood that you're gonna. Very important. Go there. The only time I've ever been mugged in my whole life was going to a bad neighbourhood in London mm. for a cheap room, and it wasn't a cheap mm. room because I got I got mm-hmm. ripped off. So make sure the neighbourhood's polite. Also remember, it doesn't need to be central because with London's no. wonderful tube system, you hop into that tube and you've got to pass anyway. So you've already paid for your tube transportation, your subway transportation, as we would say, and you're mm. 15 minutes in the tube and you're downtown. So that is remarkable to me. But let's talk about the great sites in the city that, that would be surprisingly inexpensive or, or actually free. What is the deal? Most of London's great sites, a lot of them are free, aren't they, Robert? A lot of them are free. I mean, it's uh, it's an incredibly visual city. Mm-hmm. Um, just walking around London, there are so many churches. Uh, once you get towards the city of London, you've got St. Paul's Cathedral. You have to pay to go inside St. Paul's Cathedral, but the outside, the exterior of the church is, is just beautiful. If you walk away from the church, you get great photographs of, uh, of St. Paul. So there's something that's free. Of course, you pay to go into Westminster Abbey or St. Paul's, but a lot of churches... A lot of churches oh, yeah. are free. There's beautiful architecture. You pop into mm-hmm. a, uh, the Wren, what's the wedding mm-hmm. cake church? St. Bride's. St. Bride's. It's got a wonderful museum downstairs that mm-hmm. goes all the way back to Roman times. Uh-huh. I think, though, if you do go to churches, it would be nice if you consider giving some donation when you that's left good... because they don't get government help and... 
It's tough. And it's a lot almost of, an act of faith to have them open. It's, it's a good point because a lot of people actually get a little bit bent out of shape if they're charged yes. to go into a, a, yeah. or if they ask for a donation. Yeah. But, hey, you're enjoying it and you're not going there to worship. You're yeah. going there as a tourist yeah. probably. And you might as well kick in a few pounds yeah. to, to help out. Uh, or I, even a few pence. A few pence. Anything would help. Yeah. Or buy your lunch there if they have a cafeteria. Yeah, yes. Lots of them yeah. have cafeterias I, I like now. to do that. I, anywhere in Britain, they've mm. got these very creative, wonderful, sort of homey. There are two that stand out for me. One is Church of Mary LeBeau on Cheapside in the city. that has uh-huh. a really good uh-huh. uh, cafe down in the basement. Ooh, Part of it goes back yeah. to Roman yeah. times. Yeah. Yeah. Salads. Yeah. 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 And then there's another very good cafe in, just by the Tower of London. At a church called Hallows by the Tower. Okay, that's good to know. And I've of course, got a bit of a underneath St. Paul's, yeah. there's a underneath St. Yeah, Paul's. Yeah, there's a good cafe. Yeah. And a lot of people don't realize you've got to pay £10 or something to get into St. Paul's, but there is an entryway to the cathedral in the crypt, and you just go down and you can enjoy uh, your mm-hmm. lunch there. St. Uh, Martin's St. Martin's the Martin's has the crypt. Very that's one of my favorite. I think that was the first really one. Really good restaurant there. And yeah, that's, that's right off Trafalgar Square. Yeah, because that's really good because you're going to eat amongst the graves. You can actually eat on the graves. I love mm. nothing more than, than having my <laughs> steak and kidney pie on the tomb of some think, long lost bread. I think, in fairness, they've removed the bodies, haven't they? Yes, they have. have. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the whole stinking rich thing, oh, isn't it? it? Is, I'm yes. tired of the stinking rich. It is the stinking rich. It's the rich people that were able to get buried in the church, and the poor people were tired of worshipping on top of the stinking tomb. Also, why incense? This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by three friends and fellow tour guides from London, Tom Hooper, Robert Halkett, and Jeannie Carmichael. We're talking about Budget London, of all things. When you think about the great museums, uh, Jeannie, what are some of the, just the famous museums that are free? You've got... Oh, gosh, we've got 250 museums and art galleries in London, and almost all of them are free. National Gallery? National Gallery, National Portrait Gallery, British Museum, Victoria and Albert, British Library, you can just pop in the British Library and see the Magna Carta, the Gutenberg Bible, the Beatle Manuscripts, Handel's Messiah. Jane Austen's writing desk. Plus, there are a lot of less famous galleries and museums that are are. free. The Sir John Soane Museum. Sir John Soane, yeah. Well, in in Lincoln's Inn Fields, where that is, the Sir John Soane Museum on one side, Uh and there's the Medical Museum, the Hunterian on the other. That's well worth a visit. Okay. Oh, the Wallace Collection. Wallace Collection. Oh, Wallace that's collection. beautiful. And all of those are free. Now, some of them will mm. ask for a donation, and that's between mm. you and your maker, but mm. I think it's good style to... Yes. And here's a budget trick, because I know when I'm a, a lazy traveler, I land at Heathrow and I'll take a taxi to my hotel. For the cost of that taxi... I could get of a seven-day tube pass, yes. and it would give possibly cover all of two. my... <laughs> possibly <laughs> two, yes. An Oyster card. And I could yep. probably... And you'll get there faster. I'll get to my hotel faster mm. than yeah. taking a taxi. i got to walk a little bit. i got to put my brain in gear. That's kind of, I'm just yes. brain dead, so I just sit in the taxi. But buy your tube pass, and then use the tube to get into town, and for the cost of that first ride into your hotel... I mean, the tax rate, you can cover all of your transportation in mm. London by bus or subway. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Beautiful thing. Jeannie Carmichael, Robert Halkett, and Tom Hooper are tour guides from London, helping us find the ways we can keep our costs in line as we visit the British capital. Cindy from Chalfont, Pennsylvania is on the line at 877-333-RICK to explore more budget tricks for London. Hi, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah. So the last time I was in London, I rented a flat that I got to a booking agent, and that was great. But my husband, that was for my husband and I. And I found it was really convenient to go to the supermarkets. And also, even in Victoria Station, there was like a great little mini-mart that had these prepared meals. It seems like nobody in London maybe cooks. 
and you got these really great <laughs> meals for maybe five or six you pounds. Found out the and secrets. you could take them back to the flat and heat them up in the microwave and make a cup of tea or something. And it was really tasty and a good deal. Mm. So um, this time I'm thinking of going back on my own, not with my husband. So I probably am not going to rent a whole flat. And I was just wondering if there was any suggestions for a lady such as myself, 59 years old, for a place I could stay because I'm not kind of hostile maybe, where I could have access to a microwave that I could just, you know, grab that quick meal at the Sainsbury's or mm-hmm. the, the Fortnum and Mason and just <laughs> heat it up in a microwave. I would remind you, most of those places, I think they have a microwave on the premise there because a lot of people drop in and don't have a place to go to and they just want to heat up their soup or whatever. But Mm. more and more, London has that good food on the run. It's sort of no pretense, nothing fancy, but it's quality, which is really nice for me. A lot of 9-to-5 type people, they don't bring a sack lunch and they don't have a lot of money and they just pop into one of these places. They're called food or eat or something really big. Pret-a-manger. Pret-a-manger is good. But if if you're a single woman traveling and uh, you don't have don't want to spend for a single hotel room and you don't want to stay in a youth hostel, what would your option be? Well, Airbnb, I would think. I think Airbnb. Most of which will offer some kind of, you can (laughs) either share the kitchen or they'll have a microwave. Park benches are very uncomfortable, but (laughs) Airbnb should suit, actually. That's the thing to do. Find a place that does rent single rooms, then you're going to save a lot of money. There There is the Norwegian YWCA. Have you ever heard of that place? And it rents, it only rents to Norwegians or (laughs) women who are not Norwegians. Oh, there's lots of budget options. So I think online you can find a good bet. And Cindy, uh, rest assured, you, you can eat well with takeout food these days in London. Thanks for your call. Thank you very much. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jeannie Carmichael, Tom Hooper, and Robert Halkett. We're talking about Budget London. And Lynn is calling in from Coral Springs in Florida. Hi, Lynn. Cheers. How are you? Cheers. We're doing good. Do you have any questions or thoughts about London? I certainly have. I will preface it by saying that I'm an air hostess, otherwise known as a flight attendant, and I am there quite often. So throughout the 30 years, I really truly have learned London, and I know some expensive places, but I also know some little tricks for your listeners, like the walkie-talkie. Why go to the Shard, which is the tallest building, or one of the tallest buildings, and pay about 30 pounds? I don't even know what it is, something ridiculous. It when is. You can go to the walkie-talkie for free. Remember when you do that, though, that you've got a book online. Correct. Have you enjoyed any of the various walking tours? Because I know a lot of guides love to give walking tours. And the beautiful thing about a walking tour is you share the cost of the guide with a group of people. That's true. I have done London walks, and I have done practically every single one of them. In 1994, I did Edward Petherbridge's Theaterland Walk, and I met my American husband on that one. So London walks are very, very... London (laughs) walks are close to your heart. I, I love oh. London Walks because I know the guy who runs it, and he is so a hard-working guy. And most of his guides are quite theatrical. I think they're smart, and a lot of them are, are actors who are, are great showmen. It is the best way to see London. And after all these years and having really done all of those walks, that's how I really feel like I know London mm-hmm. intimately. And Intimately? Uh, you met your husband on one of those walks. <laughs> yeah. Let me see. Oh, the theater. This one, I can't believe, is posted everywhere. When I started off many years ago, I had a student ID, and they give you discounts in these museums. And the theater, you can go one hour before a performance to the box office and get the best seat possible for, like, nothing. Well, you 
goes through the years now, and I'm a senior citizen. And I asked them, <laughs> and I still... <laughs> and you, you've enjoyed as a senior then, huh? Yes. Are we talking about going directly to that box office with your discount status? Is that how you guys yes. understand mm-hmm. that? So, and yes. it's, of course, so there will be seats available or something. So, yes. Well, if you don't exactly. ask, you don't get. Right. So, so they want to sell the seats. Oh, okay, so you go sure. just before mm. curtain time yeah. to a place that's not this year's hit. You couldn't sure. go to Hamilton and mm-hmm. do that. Oh. But, oh, no, you can't go to Hamilton. No, okay. Well, hey, Lynn, that's a great tip, and thank you so much. You're, i got to say you're an inspiration. Clearly, you've enjoyed London. <laughs> oh, I love London. All I right. really do. It's my favorite city of all. Happy travels, and give us a call again Maybe sometime, okay? Taste. Thank you very much. Okay, Bye-bye. bye now. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with three London tour guides, Jeannie Carmichael, Tom Hooper, and Robert Halkett. Jeannie, Tom, and Robert, thanks so much for helping us not only save a lot of money, but enjoy your great city. Happy travels. I'll see you next time in London. Thank Thank you, you, Rick. Thank you. Michael Scott Moore tells us about the most difficult assignment a journalist never hopes to encounter. In just a bit, he tells us how he was kidnapped and held for ransom a few years ago while investigating the causes of piracy in Somalia. But first, travel writer Robert Reed explains why you shouldn't be afraid to visit Russia. We're at 877-333-7425 on Travel with Rick Steves. Russia. It's not a destination at the top of the travel wish list for most Americans, even though it's starting to see an increase in tourism from North America. It really doesn't get much coverage in travel publications, or for that matter, on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel writer Robert Reed suggests that the travel industry might have a chip on its shoulder about Russia, and that may be shortchanging Americans from enjoying the company of some of the most welcoming people he's ever met. If travel really is a political act that can connect people as a force for peace, then why not visit Russia? Robert joins us now to make the case that Russia won't disappoint when you include it on your travel wish list. Yeah, I call it a blind spot, and I don't think it's intentional. You know, a lot of us grew up in the end of the Cold War era, so to speak, and it was kind of written off as a place. But if you just look at, you know, travel lists that are writing about like the places to go every year over the last five years or so, that's a period where you have the Sochi Olympics, the centennial of the Trans-Siberian Railway, one of the most epic train trips ever, and the World Cup last year. And those didn't make the list as much as those same kind of events did in Brazil, South Korea, and London. In fact, five times less likely to appear in those lists. So I, you know, I asked the editors about it, and there wasn't really a clear answer other than it just didn't kind of come up to have Russia. And that's why I just kind of call it a blind spot. Could it be the way they schmooze in the travel industry? Because I know a lot of countries have tourist boards, and they've got promotional budgets. And, oh, it's the 75th anniversary of the uh, the birthday of the queen's daughter. And, and they make a big deal out of it, you know. And in, in Russia, maybe they're just not playing ball the way capitalists play ball. They are definitely in a different ball game on that. I think it's a very good point. The visa is very difficult to get to Russia. It's expensive, a little complicated. They'll ask all kinds of specific questions. And they don't really advertise themselves very well. I mean, if you just look at their national airline, Aeroflot, which has gotten a lot better in the last 10 or 15 years, its marketing efforts are in Russian first. And so the message of Russia isn't as easily carried around the world as other destinations are a little more savvy. 
I was hoping to go there with my TV crew in this next season, but the visa situation and the the red tape for taking a big camera in, it was just, it got to the point where I just said, I'm not going to mess with it. I'm going to go somewhere else. They don't make it easy. There's no doubt about that. It's a more difficult country than some, though it is easier than it used to be, if you can believe it. It is easier than it used to be. Well, that's <laughs> good news. But they still, I feel like I'm dealing with interest from the old communist times when I'm trying to get things processed there. So that's one thing that you have to be patient and you have to be willing to pay a couple hundred bucks and you have to apply for your visa in advance, but not too far in advance. And you got to be willing to leave your passport in their care for a long time. So you have to be home in an exact window and it's just nerve-wracking, and uh, and then you're wondering when you get there, is it going to be worthwhile? Is it going to be safe? Is it going to be joyful? A lot of people are worried about terrorism, and uh, you point out that people need to have a little better geographic understanding of where is the risk. I mean, Chechnya is as far from Moscow as uh, Orlando is from Chicago, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a great distance. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily cancel your trip if something happened in Orlando and there was a, a nightclub incident there a couple yeah. years ago. You know, you wouldn't necessarily cancel your trip to Chicago as a result of that. And similarly, in Russia, you know, it's a big country. And the area that's on the U.S. State Department warning, Chechnya, Mount Elbrus, kind of the Caucasus Mountains to the south central, is only 1% of Russia's landmass that's warning. So there's a lot of places that that doesn't even seem like anywhere near where you are. And so it's just understanding that it's fair. You want to know the facts and understand that. But it is a really, really big place. And those incidents are very, very removed from where most people are going. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Robert Reed. And Robert Reed uh, lives and works in Vietnam. He's the editor-at-large for National Geographic Travel. He spent years and years working on and researching over 20 guidebooks for A Lonely Planet. And he's joining us today to talk about why Russia should be taken a little more seriously as a travel destination for, for us travelers. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Caroline's calling in from Dunwoody in Georgia. Caroline, thanks for your call. Hi, how are you? Doing good. Are you thinking about going to Russia? I actually am already booked. I'm leaving on the 27th of July, and we're going, I'm going with a group. We're flying from, well, from the States into St. Petersburg, and we'll be there for three days. Then we take the high-speed train to Moscow, and we stay there for three days, and then we fly home. And when we're in St. Petersburg, we're staying in the Angleterre Hotel, I believe you pronounce it, mm-hmm. right, right near the, uh, the Winter Palace. And my, one of my concerns, because I'll be traveling by myself, even though I'll be with a group, is... You know, in the evenings, is it going to be acceptable or safe for me to, like, leave the hotel and walk maybe a block or two to a restaurant for dinner by myself? Or am I going to be, you know, better off just to kind of, like, hang in the hotel? Robert, what's, what's the issue for safety on the streets in St. Petersburg and in Moscow, for that matter? I think that you can approach both those cities a little bit like being in New York City. You're in a very central place in the Winter Palace. There's lots of people walking in fact, a little bit before you're going is going to be white nights where the, it never gets dark and people are walking all night long there. I, I studied there back in the 90s and people would be out all hours. You're in a very central, very safe place. I mean, you're going to be near the Hermitage, the famous art museum. You can you know, walk along the canals. I mean, I was there last year. I took a one of those Viking cruise rivers uh, trips going between Moscow and St. Petersburg. 
And those bookends are like classic Russia. I mean, you're going to see the Onion Dome cathedrals and the great art. And uh, one of my favorite things that I think you should see, and you could while you're there, is go to the Soviet Arcade Museum. There's one in both cities, and they give you old Kopec coins from the Soviet days, and you play 1970s Soviet arcade games. I mean, it's just like families in there. And so I, I do believe you're going to have just a, a wonderful time. They're really walking cities, particularly Petersburg, that lends itself for that. You know, when I stayed not far from where you're staying and I walked over to the Marinsky Theater where all the, the great operas by Tchaikovsky were debuted and got $25 box seats and then walked back. Mm. And I, it's mm. it's really going to feel a lot differently than you might think there. They have Uber cars and taxis. They're all very reliable and inexpensive if you want to get around. But uh, I think I, you'll have a great time. I, I really jealous of your trip. I'm, I'm really great. excited about it. I had to laugh, though, when y'all were discussing the visa because that was the first thing. It was like, what do you mean $250? <laughs> it was like, oh, my God. Yeah. And, of course, all my friends are sitting around going, why are you going to Russia? Uh, I'm like, well. Why you know, not? It's a great opportunity to check well, out a, a very important culture. And as, as uh, Robert said, you're going to be right in the most beautiful part of a very exciting city. And I do want to remind you that it's going to be tough for you to be out, quote, after dark, because it's going to be late till pretty darn late. Let us know how your trip goes, Caroline. Thanks for your call. I will. Thank you. Okay. Robert Reed's a travel writer and editor-at-large for National Geographic Traveler who recommends you explore the far corners of our world. Not just to see things, but to see what happens when you're there. He's with us on Travel with Rick Steves to recommend Russia as a destination that might pleasantly surprise you. Robert, you just mentioned the arcade where uh, they use old uh, kopecks from the communist times. And there is a, a little bit of Soviet kitsch that I think travelers find interesting. Do locals sort of um, get a kick out of that? Grandparents take their kids into something that reminds them of the, of the old days back in the USSR? You know, it's a lot like everywhere. You know, you refer to nostalgia of the past and their 60s or 70s are kind of like what it would be here. And in fact, they recently started using some of the old machinery and created old Soviet sneakers from the 70s called Dvya Miacha, <laughs> which means two balls. That refers to soccer and basketball. And you play them. They're like Converse sneakers. So they're wearing these old kind of Soviet colorful sneakers now. And like this is like a hipster thing. These are kids that are wearing these things. And so, yeah, you do see elements of that just as sometimes we kind of remember and tribute our past, even if it's unremembered for the individual. Yeah. When you're in Moscow and St. Petersburg, what are the most poignant uh, museum-going experiences for 20th century history? I really, really love Russian art. I was a Russian literature nut, and so all those paperbacks of Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Turgenev and all these novels are paintings by great Russian masters. Hmm. And in Moscow, there's the Tretyatkov Gallery, and in Petersburg, there's the Russian State Museum they are not as crowded as the Hermitage. And I really, really love their art. It's inexpensive to go to. Those are great, great museums. And then in Moscow, the Cosmonaut Museum. I mean, you know, the space race really, you know, it started with Yuri Gagarin getting up and orbiting the Earth first. And you see all these old cosmonaut outfits and the dogs they sent up to space. They're, they're actually there, the stuffed dogs. That's fun. You know, and that's going back to a little bit of Soviet nostalgia. That sounds just great. One of the frustrations I had was there were two standards for hotel prices. Do they still have that? I mean, I find that hotels are, are quite expensive in St. Petersburg and Moscow. 
Well, you know, the same thing that's happened everywhere is happening in Russia, and that it's easier to do homestays and, and get Airbnb kind mm -hmm. of things. And this is really fun because it gets you in neat neighborhoods. I stayed in a place that they decorated all in a Beatles theme that I found on Airbnb in Petersburg. I was in the George Martin room. <laughs> ah. And the funny thing about Russia is a lot of people think of those old kind of socialist housing blocks that are gray and forbidding. But when you go inside it, it's kind of like Higa, you know, that Danish idea of coziness and warmth. They really, really have always had that inside. And so you have these really colorful homes that are really cozy, for lack of a better word. And yeah. they have a word for Higa there. It's Uyut, which is Uyut. not a word that we really have in English. So you'll find a lot of really nice places. And if you're looking for something less expensive, you can really find good deals that way. I would love to experience Russian coziness. Because I don't think of, I think of Russia as the opposite of cozy. But you're right, when you think about those old communist flats, I think the ethic was, or the sensibility was, you don't show, you're not ostentatious with your wealth. So everybody is equal on the outside, and it's just kind of gray and uniform. But inside, that's your personal domain, and that's where you can have a little uyut. That's one of the powers of this, the whole reason to go. Obviously, you see these icons like St. Basil's and you can ride the Trans-Siberian, etc. But the people sometimes don't get a fair representation outside the region. Once you meet them, they will treat you like long-lost family. Sometimes that outside image isn't the whole story. The people are wonderful. And you, you're talking about Airbnb and hopping in an Uber, uh, mm -hmm. just like you'd be here in the United States. Yeah, I, I've been going for 25 years, and I mm -hmm. can say that it's never been as easy. It, the place feels optimistic. And it's easier than it's ever been. It's less expensive than it was a decade ago. I know that the visa's hard, and there's something kind of fun about it in a way, trying to get through the visa process. Mm -hmm. And you can contact agencies like Gen Visa is one. Yes, That's where I got Hire my visa. a visa service to get yes, that done. Yes, Absolutely. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And George is calling from Clifton Park in New York. George, thanks for your call. Privet, thanks for taking my call. What's your uh, thoughts on Russia? Well, my wife and I were there this past June. We loved it. We would go back again. The restaurants had menus that were in English. Uh, people were very curious about the U.S. They were very curious about what we thought of Russia it was a fantastic time, and we'd love to go back again. We were in Moscow, St. Petersburg, and Tver, right between St. Petersburg and Moscow. George, did you stay in hotels or Airbnb? Airbnb. We have a Russian friend who lives in Tver. She works on Cape Cod in the summer. That's how we met her. And she invited us over there over the years, and, and we finally uh, took her up on it. It was Airbnb. It was excellent. We stayed in some side areas of, of Moscow, but we felt very safe on the streets. It was very inexpensive. It was just a great time. And it's a big city. If you're staying in Airbnb, you're likely to be in some residential area far from the center. Do you get into town by Uber or by public transit? No, actually, we were in Town. We were a couple of blocks off the main drag in uh, Moscow, wow. and the same thing with uh, St. Petersburg. So it was um, wonderful, very convenient. Many of the younger people, I'd say under 40, speak English. Some of them over 40, I believe they understand English. They don't speak it as much, but they do understand. Fantastic. Thanks, George, for your uh, report. Thank you. All right. Take care. Paka. And Stephen's on the phone in Cudahy, Wisconsin. Stephen, how are you doing? Good, Rick.
yeah, I just I would love to go to Russia. I'd love to go to Petersburg. I'd love to go to Moscow. But I want to ask Robert, if I do go there, wouldn't my tourist dollar be going to help support a corrupt and repressive regime? Well, you know, that's a decision everyone makes. I, I covered Burma or, or Myanmar during that travel boycott when Aung San Suu Kyi was under house arrest. A lot of people chose to stay out. And I worked on that guidebook for Lonely Planet because I, I really believed that there needed to be an opportunity for people to understand how you can go to places independently and make the decision for themselves. And you know what? If that's the decider for you that, that some of the money could go to a place you don't want it to be, then that has you have to respect that decision. But there are so many aspects of your trip that's going into individual hands. I mean, even increasingly so, you could argue with, you know, homestays and things like this and eating at local places, which are the, the best places. There's new craft beer places or just eating at local cafeterias, whatever, where you can meet people. And I, you know, for me, that outweighs that. And it, it does for me across the board in, in terms of the benefit of people-to-people meeting in places sometimes that they don't get along officially and creating a separation between mm-hmm. a government and a people and a culture. And I think for really all my lifetime, a lot of people have confused Russians with the government and mm. the disagreements that our government and theirs may have had. You remember that Sting song from the 1980s, Russians, and he sings, I hope Russians love their children too. And of course they do. But I totally respect that some people might look at it differently. Stephen, I, I would agree with Robert there. And when I travel to countries whose government that we may disagree with or whatever, I always feel like it's really adding to that people-to-people connection, which is more fundamental than governments-to-governments. And when we travel there, it makes it tougher for their government to demonize us with their propaganda. And when we come home, we have a more fair and, and real understanding of them as well. It gives us empathy for each other. And I think that really outweighs any way that we might be supporting a, a regime we disagree with. Okay, well, thanks, Rick. Thanks, Robert. Yeah, thanks for your call, and uh, happy travels. You too. Frequent traveler to Russia, Robert Reed is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. He writes about Russia on his readontravel.com website and on Twitter under Reed on Travel. That's R-E-I-D. Robert, it's been so fun talking to you about Russia, and it's been a reminder talking with you and our callers of the importance of uh, remembering it is a people-to-people experience. And uh, whether you're, uh, you know, strolling the main boulevard or whether you're sitting in an Uber, you've got a chance to connect with the people. Let's close out our discussion just with a moment that you remember that, that really humanized Russia. I covered a lot of Siberia, and when you're on the train, you have the best opportunity to meet Russians, and people will come on, or you'll you'll join them in their cabin and where your bed is. And I would have couples just immediately make my bed for me, and they would pull out vegetables and breads and cheeses that they had and treat me like a, a long-lost nephew or cousin. And eventually the vodka started pouring. But I made so many friends on the trains, and that kind of image isn't always known outside. Just take a train, and you're going to make some friends. Wow. And that is raw travel. You're you're on a train with some vegetables and some vodka and some new friends hurtling across Siberia. Robert, thanks so much for shining a light on Russia. And we've been talking about people. What's a phrase I should know so when I go to Russia, I can let them know that I respect their culture? Oh, goodness. You know, if you use a little Russian, they're going to really love you. Hello is difficult. It's Mm. 
Здравствуйте. Здравствуйте. They will be happy. Robert, thanks for joining us and happy travels. Thank you, Rick. An American journalist describes what it was like to be held for ransom for 977 days in Somalia. Michael Scott Moore tells us his story next on Travel with Rick Steves. It's probably a traveler's worst nightmare, being kidnapped and held for ransom in a faraway country. Somali pirates have made the seas around the Horn of Africa one of the riskiest places to sail in the world. Michael Scott Moore went on an assignment to Somalia for a major German publication to investigate how to put an end to the region's piracy. But he was taken captive by the very men who agreed to be interviewed by him. Michael was held for almost three years. That gave him time to understand what kind of people his captors were and to better understand himself before a hefty ransom payment finally secured his release. Michael explains what it took for him to survive his captivity in his book, The Desert and the Sea, 977 Days Captive on the Somali Pirate Coast. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell his story. Michael, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. You were living in Germany in 2011, and then you reported on the trial of 10 Somali pirates... Then you mm-hmm. traveled right. to their hometown in Somalia to research a book on pirates, and you were kidnapped by an armed pirate gang just 10 days into your trip. Wasn't it pretty That's risky right. to go there? Yeah. No, it was. I mean, I knew I would, what I was getting into. I, I spent months organizing the trip with my partner, Ashwin Rahman, who's a documentary maker, and uh, we, we spent a lot of time finding security and that sort of thing. So you had security while you were there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Somebody within their clan betrayed us, I think. So you're in this town, uh, you're there for 10 days doing your work. What was the town like before everything went crazy when you got kidnapped? Well, the town was interesting to both of us because it was a boom town. We got there in early 2012, and for the last six years or so, which is about the same span of time that Somali pirates had been very active out on the water, it had really expanded. So Hmm. it was a small crossroads town that had turned into a a big, slightly important business hub. Um, So there was evidence that possibly ransom cash was sort of flowing around in the economy. And that's one reason we were there. The boom would have been stoked by ransom rather than normal industry? Very possibly, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to tell. It's Mm -hmm. hard to prove anything. But um, it was fascinating, especially the the businesses that had boomed, you know, not Mm -hmm. not just medical clinics and schools, but also... um, they're called Hawala Money Transfer Centers. Galkayo, which is the name of the town, was this incredible hub for very modern Hawala Money Transfer Centers, and those are very important to pirates. Now, if everything had gone well, you did your interview and you flew back to Germany, what would you have said good about traveling in Somalia? Was there anything to like about it? Uh, yes. The people are full of energy, the people are really interesting, and the the food is often good. Um, while I was a free man, I got plenty of sort of watermelon and, and camel meat and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and I liked that. While I was a hostage, I sometimes got camel meat too, and that was a high point. So describe the day of your capture. Suddenly, everything's gone just crazy. Yeah. Ashwin and I had finished about 10 days of research, and we both felt we'd gotten pretty good material, and so it was more or less time to go home. But um, flights aren't very frequent to and from Galkayo. So um, Ashwin decided to go to Mogadishu, uh, which meant a different flight from mine, which was going to Nairobi, uh, which meant we were, we were going to travel on different days. So we we went to the airport with Ashwin and put him on the plane. Everything went well until we got in the car again and headed back towards our hotel in Galkayo. 
And it was on the sort of dusty road between the airport and the town that a flatbed truck was waiting for us. Uh, the truck was actually a technical, which means a battle wagon in Somalia, fairly common sight, a flatbed with a cannon welded in the back. And there were maybe a dozen men with Kalashnikovs waiting for us. And that truck stopped our car. You know that there's a ransom industry. When they took you, did you figure, oh, they're not going to kill me. They're just going to hold me and try to turn it into some money? Yeah, I knew Somali pirates tended not to kill their hostages precisely because they wanted just money for them. They're not ideological uh, hostage takers. They're just criminal. They just want the money. What I didn't expect was that they were going to demand $20 million, which was a total shock to me. Journalist Michael Scott Moore is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. In his book, The Desert and the Sea, Michael tells his story of being held hostage in Somalia for nearly three years and how foreign policy and religious extremism combined to make the waters off Somalia among the dodgiest in the world. Michael's on the board of Hostage U.S., a nonprofit that helps families of Americans who've been kidnapped. He blogs on his website at radiofreemike.net. Okay, Michael, so you're, you're taken hostage by these guys. Did they actually have a prison, or, or how did they, quote, lock you up, and what was your daily routine? No, they didn't have a prison. They just, they stopped our car with that technical, but they put me in another car once they pulled me out, you know, and they beat me a little bit beforehand, and then we drove off into the bush. So the first place that we stopped was actually a camp somewhere in the middle of the Somali bush that made sense somehow to them, but for, for me it was completely discombobulating. It was a camp where there were obviously other hostages and a few other pirates. Hmm. Western hostages? Uh, well, I couldn't tell. My glasses have been broken, but mm -hmm. um, they were not Western hostages. Right. They were two... Uh, fishermen from the Seychelles. Hmm. Okay, so what did, what did you eat when they got you in your place? The first thing they, they gave me was bread and canned tuna. Hmm. And that's something I don't, I don't ever need to hmm. eat again, as a matter of fact. Canned tuna is disgusting to me now. Hmm. But that was a pretty typical sort of lunch. They didn't need to worry about what you liked or what you needed. They just needed to keep you alive, right? Were they, keep were, me alive. Were they that's, cruel in that regard? Was it almost calculated, oh, he doesn't, he just needs water and a little bit of bean porridge and he'll be okay? Yeah, it was. I mean, that was precisely how they treated all their hostages. I mean, really just cattle to be kept alive. They kept us barely alive. So you were there for three years. Was it boring or was it constant fear? How'd you pass the time? Well, it was both. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, um, it was boring, but especially at the beginning, I was in fear all the time because I wasn't sure what was going to happen. Right. You had a lot of time to think. What did you think about? First of all, I thought about my family, and I wondered what, what they were going through. Um, and also, I thought about my past. I mean, it, it's interesting how once something that traumatic happens to you, you sort of go back in time to try and figure out exactly how you got there. Hmm. I mean, f for me, it was a couple of pretty obvious recent decisions. But I went far back in time to mm. figure out why I hadn't become a doctor and why I became mm. a writer and all that kind of thing. <laughs> wow. Did you, did you decide you have to have a strategy to survive and you, you had to rethink, okay, how am I going to get through this? Sort of. I wasn't sure I was going to get through it. I mean, at some point after a year or more, I think I simply lost hope that I would get through it. And that more or less helped. Mm. Um, it didn't help my mood, but it... Trying to main, maintain hope would have been difficult, um, would mm -hmm. have been impossible, because that was one thing that the pirates actually wanted me to do. They kept saying, well, you're going to get out in two weeks or, or a month or so and try and keep my hopes up. But then they would be mm -hmm. dashed after two weeks or a month. So that was a very, very big psychological problem. So you're living with these captors who have complete power over you. Did you have any thought of 
empathy for them? I mean, were they captives in a sense as well, or, or were they just thugs that were power-hungry and, and merciless? Yeah, both. They were thugs, but they were also captives in the sense that they were locked into those prison houses along with me. Um, I was held in a series of prison houses as well as on a ship. They couldn't come and go as they pleased. They were forced to live there and, and watch us 24 hours a day. Yeah, so it's a know? sense like so they didn't have in an army. You can't leave an army uh, historically. You're just captive of the army. It's a lot like that. Yeah, exactly. You wrote about how they were stoned on narcotic cud and blasted music from their cell phones. They must have been annoying. <laughs> <laughs> they were. Almost every pirate I met was addicted to cut, which is a leafy drug that uh, Somalis like to chew, and people in that part of the world from Yemen down through Ethiopia and Kenya also like to chew. Uh, Muslims in particular like it because it's not al alcohol. So one of my pirates actually called it the Somali beer. Hmm. And every one of my guards, you know, the high point of his day was when the cot arrived and they could sit down in front of this pile of leaf and just start chewing for several hours. Did it occur to you that maybe you could chew it with them and be a comrade? Or was that like not the way of thinking? Oh, they wanted me to. I mean, they pushed it on me. Did you try it? Um, Sure. I mean, most of the time I resisted it, but a couple of times I would have, you know, three or four stems. You chew the stem rather than the leaf. Uh, the first effect is it makes you high, so it's a little bit more like a coca leaf at first, so you feel better. Your mood improves. You yeah. know, if you're a little bit ill, you feel better, and if you're depressed, you feel a little bit up. But these guys need so much of it that mm. they get extremely hopped up on it and sometimes very agitated until they, they just crash and then fall asleep and then wake up depressed. Hmm. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Michael Scott Moore. His book is The Desert and the Sea. It's talking about 977 days captive on the Somali pirate coast. Now, what did they want? I mean, is it is simply money? There, there was no revolutionary or political or religious agenda? Or, or were they angry at a certain kind of foreign policy? Or, or was just this was simply employment for them? No, the religion was there. Um, and when you dug, I mean, I asked questions. So when you pushed, you found it, you know. And I, I was actually surprised to find that most of my pirates were religious. They prayed five times a day. And after a while, I said, I challenged one of them and said, you're not acting like a Muslim. Um, you say you're a Muslim and you act like a Muslim, but you're not acting very kind. You're sitting here acting pious while you're holding a hostage. Eventually, he gave, gave me a justification for that. He said, well, we don't actually think that stealing from infidels is theft. I thought that was an interesting interpretation, yeah. especially for a Sufi. Most Somalis are Sufis. That is. They spoke English? Yeah, they spoke a little bit of English, mm -hmm. so we could get by with my few words of Somali and their few yeah. words of English. Did you make any friends among them? Not quite friends, but, you know, we knew our boundaries, our limits, right. but there were a few that I got along with because they were just more open, and um, one of them in, in particular, Boshko, the one that, who I asked about his religion, yeah. he had a good sense of humor. So, actually, we, we got along... On a certain level. You wrote you're a lapsed Catholic, but you found relief in reading the Bible. How so? Well, on the ship, so the, after a few months, they put us on a tuna ship that the gang had captured on, on the ocean. They anchored it off Hobio and uh, put me and one other hostage on in the middle of April. And, and we met almost 30 other hostages, and five of them were Filipino, and they had Bibles. And so one of them gave us a Bible mm -hmm. to read and said, you know, you can pass the time that way. And I hadn't read anything in several months, so I devoured it. At first, I, I was looking for something that wasn't quite there in the Bible, you know. I was looking for direct wisdom and direct non-contradictory advice, but the Bible is full of mysterious contradictions. Mm -hmm. But it, it did 
help. It sank in and it did help, you know, almost two years later. By then I was being held on land in these prison houses. I had a radio and I, I heard the Pope say something on the radio that was actually quite relevant because by that time I was in a terrible sort of vengeful state of mind and near suicidal. And the Pope said something about mercy that helped me sort of alter my thinking a little bit. And eventually I managed to forgive my guards, which actually helped me survive. Michael Scott Moore is telling us how he survived 977 days as the captive of pirates in Somalia, which he writes about in his book, The Desert and the Sea. Michael describes how his captors reacted to the release of the movie Captain Phillips during his captivity in an extra to this week's show. You can hear that at ricksteves.com radio. What was the darkest moment? Well, there were plenty of dark moments, but at some point they decided to chain my feet at night, so I couldn't sleep without having the chains on my feet, and even then it was difficult to sleep. When you're that exhausted, does your, does your body give you sleep, or do you be endlessly sleepless? You get sleep, but you, you, know, you dream about home, and then you wake up and you're still in Somalia, so it's, it's really unpleasant. And you can barely move without the chains moving, oh. you know, the chains wake you up. So that was miserable. And um, by that point, I was sort of losing that sense of hope and losing that attachment to hope as some sort of a relief um, or some, some sort of a balm. You wrote quite poignantly, hope, it turned out, was like heroin for a hostage, and it could be just as destructive. Exactly. So in other words, if you tried to cling to this hope, this feeling that kept you above the waterline, you plunged below the waterline into a depression that felt very dangerous. And you could only do that cycle a few times before you realized that you had to detach yourself from the cycle altogether. So hope was counterproductive. Michael, about the kidnapping industry, basically it's a big industry and Americans Mm -hmm. are very profitable. If you can grab an American, you get a higher ransom. How did they connect with your mom? How did they give the price? How did the negotiations work? Uh, How did you know when your mom got the money and she paid it that they would get it and that they would then release you? They could take the money and and keep you. Sure. Yeah, no, I I didn't know any of that. Nobody knew where the first phone call was going to go. When I first got captured, the FBI turned up at my mother's house as well as at the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. Their offices in Washington, they had given me a grant. Uh, Also at the Spiegel office in Berlin where I worked and some family members in Germany. So not the FBI, but the German version. So those were several possibilities. And after about a week of captivity, which for me was an incredibly long time, the pirates put a phone in my hand and said, call somebody. I said, well, I need my notes so I can call the Pulitzer Center. I didn't name any institutions, but I said, Mm -hmm. I need my notes so I can know who to call. I said, just call somebody. Call your, you know, wife. Call your mother. Well, I remembered my mother's phone number, so I called her. And she sounded terrified on the phone, but she'd had a week to think about it and to listen to advice from the FBI. So actually, she knew the right questions to ask. And everyone was, of course, completely bowled over by this $20 million demand. Mm. But that's how we wound up calling mm-hmm. calling my mother. And then your mother said, that's impossible. And they said, well, yeah. how about $5 million? The negotiations didn't start right at that moment. The pirates threatened that if they didn't get the money in 24 hours or whatever, they were going to starve me. Nobody took that seriously, and I wasn't starved. But within the next few weeks or something, the mm-hmm. negotiations continued, and she made a counteroffer of something like $8,000. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> which <laughs> made my heart sink when I heard it. Mom, come on. <laughs> Actually, I was proud of her. It mm-hmm. made my heart sink, but I was proud of her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was the right answer. Okay, well, you came up with 1.6 million. She scrambled that together somehow, quite heroic, I would imagine. What's the mechanics of it? How do you give money to captors, and how do you know they're going to let you go? They don't. They can just take the money and keep you. Yeah, uh, she scraped that up, not just herself, but through donations from family and friends and various right. magazines I'd worked for and that sort of thing. Okay. Uh, the money had to be delivered in cash. It arrived on a plane. I'm not exactly sure who delivered it, but uh-huh. it arrived a few hours before I was delivered to a bush plane, a pilot who'd flown in to get me. And the pirates knew what the drill was going to be. Um, the question is whether they were going to adhere to the yeah. to all the agreements. But one part of the Somali pirate business model is that once they make an agreement, they tend to stick to it. Because they want to be able to be credible for the next hostage? For the next event, yeah, for the oh, next Oh, that case. would make sense, wouldn't it? So if, yeah. they just, if they were dishonest about it, people would stop giving them $1.6 million next time around. Exactly, yeah. So the day you got on that bush plane and, and they let you go? They brought me to a couple of middlemen. I, th- I think I switched cars twice uh, that afternoon, and then the last car brought me to the airport, the same airport where I'd said goodbye to Ashwin. Mm. And there was a Cessna waiting for me and um, really a, a great pilot named Derek who I've gotten to be friends with in the meantime. So what was it like to be free? Well, I, I can't say it was elation. Um, I was still confused. I was still extremely weak. I was still very disoriented. That went on for a few days, but um, once I realized I was going free, I think all that heaviness started to started to lighten up in stages. Oh. Um, and I think one car at a time towards the airport, I started to realize it was getting more and more real and more more and more believable yeah. that I was going free. And once I saw Derek at the airport, I thought, oh my gosh, this is real. The most incredible feeling was that it was actually ending without gunfire. I I thought that negotiations were stalled and so stuck in the mud that mm. there was no way I was going to get out without violence. An American special forces team coming in or something like that. Right. If that had happened, there was a good chance I was going to get killed. You know, So I was not convinced I was going to get out alive until I saw the plane. <laughs> so you're home, you're free, you're healthy. Life goes on. You've given your mm-hmm. mom a big hug and reminded her you're worth more than $8,000. Right. <laughs> How are you different now after this ordeal when you look back on it? I think that practice of, of learning not to hope anymore has sort of persisted. So in other words, I don't look too far into the future. I certainly don't live for the future anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually not a bad practice. And I think also an, a stoic idea that helped me while I was there which was you tend to ask yourself when something bad happens, why me? And the stoic answer is, well, why not you? (laughs) That notion also helps you sort of detach from whatever might be ailing you at the time. Hmm. Michael Scott Moore, The Desert and the Sea. Thanks for sharing your ordeal, and uh, I'm glad you were able to tell the story. (laughs) Me too. Thank you, Rick. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner with Sarah McCormick. Thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in New York City for their help this week. We get promotional support from Sheila Gerzoff. You'll find more at ricksteves.com radio. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. 
This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.